Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Citizen, may I assist you? I was bent at the waist with my hands on my knees. I lifted my eyes to the source of the voice. It was a fax, gender ambiguous, with an articulating wheeled platform below. They were called helpers, these models. They zoomed around the streets of the city, making themselves useful, offering directions, opening a door for a woman with her hands full of packages, directing traffic when the need arose. Just the sight of its airsat's expressionless face filled me with revulsion. Are you in need of attention, citizen? I drew myself slowly upright. No, thank you, I said. Proctor Bennett, I would be glad to call for assistance if that is what you require. How did it know my name? But of course it knew my name. Connected to the central information system, the fax had scanned my face and run the image through the database. Probably the damn thing knew what I'd eaten for breakfast. Nothing. That's not necessary, I said. I'm perfectly fine. It skipped a beat and declared in an androgynous monotone, I am equipped with a full suite of medical diagnostic software. Are you listening, you stupid machine? Go away. If you will permit me access to your monitor, I placed a hand against its metal chest and shoved hard. I said, leave me the fuck alone. The fax rolled backward and stopped. Another beat, I could practically hear its circuits whirring, and it spun in a 180 and whizzed away in search of other people to harass with mindless generosity. I watched it go full of contempt. Whose idea was it to make these bogus monstrosities, these parodies of people? And why had I failed to notice this before? Just as I'd failed to notice the barely bottled hostility of those common men and women among us who were forced not merely to perform the lowliest sorts of tasks all day, but also to endure our pity for the very chores we asked of them. Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Justin Cronin is the New York Times bestselling author of The Passage, The Twelve, and The City of Mirrors. Today, I'm joined by Justin Cronin to talk about his latest novel, The Ferryman. Justin Cronin, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much. It's nice to be here. The Ferryman could sit quite comfortably within the science fiction fantasy genre or as post-apocalyptic dystopian drama, maybe a psychological thriller, a story of environmental collapse, but the more I tried to categorise the Freeman, it soon became apparent that it traverses all of those elements and much more. Can I suggest that your imagination knows no genre boundaries? Well, that's a very nice compliment. Um, I try to, you know, make a, make a book operate in a lot of different ways. You know, I've learned a lot from various different genres and every genre that you mentioned, of course, is in some ways playing a role. You didn't mention one, though, which is that it's a detective novel. Which I I, I think of I think of the book maybe in parts where there's a large section that is devoted to you know sort of questions of dystopia how does this world operate this dystopian world and there are sections that are clearly science fiction and but then there's a big section in the middle kind of act two kind of holding it all together that behaves like a detective novel which I had never written 
And so I kind of had to, that was a real challenge for me, you know, to have a character moving through the world, getting information, um, staying a step, sometimes a step ahead of the reader and sometimes a step behind the reader and kind of managing that. And that was a real challenge for me. Whatever the genre, you've created a fabulously detailed and complex world. You've built a world. Where does one start when building a world? Oh, that's a good question. For me, this book really came out of just a couple of odd details that then just sort of like pulled together in my head. And as a Genesis story for the book, it started when I was taking a walk on a starry night. Once you read the book, you'll see how very significant that is in some way. But uh, I was out taking a walk on Cape Cod, which is a beach community where I, I spent some of, some of the year. And while I was out on this walk, a word dropped into my head, kind of out of no place. And it was the word Orenios, which readers will find is kind of a magic word in this world. The second thing was a scene, which I had no idea what the relationship was between this magic word, which I did not know the meaning of. I had to go look it up. And then a scene in which I saw an old man having some kind of psychological meltdown on a pier. These two things were sort of, they, they seemed to have a relationship to each other, but I instinctively knew that I was looking at a setting I would have to build, a world I would have to build around this material. So that's that's kind of where it all started. I, it, there was also in the back of my mind uh, an issue that had that I'd been just sort of stewing over, not as a source for fiction, but just in general, which was what are we going to do with a lot of our social institutions when we start living a very, very long life. And it's been generally sort of posited that right now the first human being is going to live to be 150 years old has already been born. My life expectancy is somewhere just south of 80. Probably I was born in 1962. My kids born in the 90s and then in the 2000s, they could really very easily see 100. It's just, I would be kind of surprised if they didn't. So what's going to happen in a world in which people live very, very long lives? And what's going to happen when people, and this is a, kind of the upside of technology, what's going to happen when some people get to live enormously comfortable and interesting lives that are very, very long? What will happen to some of our institutions? And most of our institutions are based in the idea that's already out of date that we're going to tap out at about 65, like our whole social welfare system. And, and here was the institution I was most interested in, which was marriage. Right, which is marriage. And in the world of this novel, marriage has been replaced by contractual arrangements from five to 15 years. Who really, at the age of, let's say, 25, wants to sign on for another 100 years with another person? Right? It just simply made no sense to me. So it was, you know, information coming from a lot of different places where I was trying to organize this society. And I'd take one idea, like everybody lives to be 120, 130, 140, and then start building institutions backwards from there. But you're also building worlds within worlds, within worlds, within worlds. The Freeman is like a set of Russian matrioska dolls. I pull one out and there appears another and then another. But let's start with Prospera. That's the first world you create. It's a beautiful place filled with beautiful creative people, idyllic by your description, but a little eerie in a Pleasantville kind of way, intense, claustrophobic, almost suffocating in its perfected order. But there's something joyless about life on Prospera. Well, the problem is if you don't suffer, nothing means anything. I mean, this is a society who consider themselves to be constantly in pursuit of creative expression. These are the sort of the highest value there is, 
is creative expression in the arts and in uh, even just sort of in daily life. Even the smallest details of life are subject to the most scrutinizing curatorial eye. To some extent, I, this was parody of the way that people live in places like Northern California or Brooklyn. Um, but without suffering, without stress, without something to push against, for instance, I can't imagine that you could make good art, right? And it doesn't, you, you can't do it out of happiness. You can't do it out of comfort. And I know this personally as a writer. You know, the best thing that ever happened in my writing career was, was that in, in my 30s, I had to do it while I was doing a thousand other things just to put food on the table. And that's a great motivator. And it also gives you material. And, and I don't just mean like experiences that you've had. I, I mean, like the, the sort of range of human feeling, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the complexities of human feeling that you, that you acquire over time. And so Prospera is actually a dead place. They're having a nice time, or at least they think they are, but uh, there's something very, there's something dead about it. And some of the people in the novel feel that. So let's talk about Proctor Bennett, the ferryman, managing director for District 6 of the Department of Social Contracts. What a title. Enforcement division. Enforcement division. Very important. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's called aging people to the nursery for renewal or to be reiterated. That means your memory is wiped clean, your body is renewed, and as we've discussed, by contractual agreement. Proctor Bennett is in a position of considerable power, isn't he? Oh, yes. No, I mean, he's he's kind of the, the linchpin that makes this society run. I mean, the ultimate soft landing is to banish death itself and in this society people live long fulfilling lives but there comes a point where you would probably simply become bored right you would want to start over and then the body does age limitations set in and in fact what begins to happen is the weight of memory the weight of accumulated experience starts to create a condition that is rather like dementia and so the whole society relies very heavily on the idea of reiteration. Citizens of Prospera, at any given moment, they can choose to go whenever they want. But generally speaking, they do so towards the end of their biological lives. They'll board the ferry, go to the nursery. Nobody knows what happens there, only that it does. And, you know, sometime later, a couple of weeks, they will return on the ferry as fresh-faced teenagers with no memory of their previous lives, ready to start all over again. And Proctor Bennett, his job is to get people on the ferry. And that makes him one part lawyer because there's an awful lot of paperwork involved. This is a society with a rather dense bureaucracy. Um, and one part psychotherapist. This is where he, this is where his skill set is really the most honed. He's a student of human transitional dynamics, as it's called, and can and with very high emotional intelligence. And he does a really, really good job of, as he says, greasing the gears in one of life's most emotionally complicated moments. And the last thing is he's a policeman, um, because sometimes people don't want to go, and sometimes a judicial order of mandatory retirement is issued because somebody's well-being monitor, which I guess we'll talk about in a minute, has fallen below 10% and it's time for them to go. So in many ways, he's the ideal bureaucrat, but um, he begins questioning everything around him, his relationships, his position as managing director. 
And all of this is accelerated by an incident involving Proctor's father. I guess father is uh, a loosely applied term. Well, yes, that's right. And it's his, it's his guardian, right? Because there are no children either. And that's the ultimate, you know, if you really want to take hardship out of your life, get rid of the kids, right? <laughs> I mean, right. Now, not merely because it's, it's very hard to live your best life when you're, you know, trying to go through rush hour traffic to take Timmy to soccer practice, right? <laughs> I don't know what that's like, right? But also having children puts a whole set of fresh dangers and anxieties into your life. Nothing can hurt you anywhere near as much as what can hurt your kids, right? So it's a very risky, it's a fraught endeavor having kids. So it's not something they do. So Proctor's father, Malcolm Proctor, they become involved in this incident on the ferry. In this heated moment, Malcolm utters the words, much quoted, I must say, the world is not the world, you are not you. What is Malcolm trying to communicate and what does Proctor make of it? Well, here's the thing, I can't tell you. (laughs) I can tell you what's happening to Malcolm. Malcolm is having what are called echoes. And this is the sort of prosperous version of dementia. He's quite old. He's reached the end of life. He's about 136, I believe. His well-being monitor is at about 14%, I think, which is very low. And he's having what are called echoes. And echoes are thought generally to be chopped up memories of previous iterations. The mind eventually, after a certain number of years, 120, 130, 140, even some, in some cases 150, breaks under the load of accumulated life and all the data starts to scramble. And that's what's happening to Proctor's dad. He's waited rather too long. And on the way to the ferry, he starts to have an, what is essentially a psychotic break. He has an episode where he's overwhelmed by what are also called bad thoughts. And one of his bad thoughts is, you are not you. And another one is, the world is not the world. And the last one is, it's all Orenios, that magic word that I mentioned. And he hands these things to Proctor. Proctor has no idea what to make of them. But it becomes the thing that Proctor chases, trying to figure it out. Because one thing he realizes rather quickly is, he's in a lot of trouble for having heard this. The load of successive lives begins to weigh down on your characters. And one of the interesting things that happens uh, through this, I guess, kind of biological control is this idea of convergence. And Proctor meets Chaley, a young schoolgirl, a recent product of reiteration. But as we know, messing with biology is always a dangerous business. And their meeting explodes a flaw in that system. That is convergence. What is convergence? What effect does it have on Proctor's outlook? Well, convergence is a phenomenon that is sort of, uh, it's not scientifically understood, nor does anybody care that much. Convergence is a feeling that people get rather like deja vu, sometimes in the company of others. And it is generally thought that you experience this feeling of convergence because the person was important to you in a previous iteration. And it's sort of a big social joke, right? Like, oh, I'm, I must have slept with you once. I hope it was good is the line that's used. And so it's this kind of eerie feeling that washes over you, deja vu-ish, really. Proctor, with 
Chaley on the beach, who is a sort of mysterious girl, she doesn't, you know, Proctor Cannon can't get any specific data out of her about who her guardians are or, you know, anything at all. He meets her several times, each in a circumstance that, you know, she just kind of inserts herself into his life. And he experiences that feeling that she is somebody that he has known, somebody important to him, but he, of course, can't actually identify what that importance is was she at some point his ward for instance and that's sort of how he feels but he can't quite put his finger convergence is almost like a bridge uh, not just to people but to the next plot twist as well building a utopia requires a great deal of bureaucracy as you referred to a little earlier and also an underclass to make it work. And that comes in the form of the annex. And here we're introduced to an underclass of people who do all the shitty jobs. Somebody has to, right? Somebody has to keep, somebody has to wash the pots, right? It's, it's, it stands to reason. Exactly. And within the annex is this group of people called the arrivalists. And they uh, defer to this philosophy called arrivalism. What is arrivalism? What's going on in the annex is, of course, is that people there live actual human lives. They do not get to reiterate. They live for a certain number of, of decades. Um, they do manual labor. Uh, they are the people who put tar on the roads and clear the dirty dishes away and cut the grass. They live es- essentially in a kind of urban ghetto, which is connected to Prospera uh, across a, a narrow floating bridge, a causeway. Their comings and goings are heavily monitored, heavily restricted. I was thinking of the behavior of any number of police states with semi-enslaved working classes. There are plenty to choose from throughout history. Um, But what happens behind the walls, in this case, is very often people trying to find another system of meaning in their lives. Daily life, if, if it's kind of intolerable, if you don't have enough food and you're not paid enough and you work all day long and there doesn't seem to be any answer to these, these questions, if you are essentially in a state of more or less common constant low-grade suffering, people are going to try to construct other kinds of meanings. And what you have in the annex is a burgeoning uh, revolutionary movement that also is religious in nature. It is essentially a kind of revolutionary religion, rather like, say, um, liberation theology. I, I'll, go, you know, I'll, go, I'll go sort of grab at that. You know, arrivalism is the, is the name of it because it is essentially the belief in a heavenly reward for, for earthly toil and the arrival at some kind of promised land. But like, you know, like most movements in here, I was actually kind of thinking of that some of the divisions within, say, the IRA in the 70s, where you had a political wing and then you had a terrorist wing. And so within arrivalism, you have a religious wing and then you also have an active political insurgency going on, which is, you know, eventually is kind of hoping to overthrow the existing social order. You're very skilled at creating worlds, but particularly skilled at wrenching the reader out of that world rather abruptly. And that's exactly what happens here in The Ferryman. As a reader, I found uh, this constant sense of we don't know exactly where we're going, but we know we're going somewhere. (laughs) And there's quite a distance between where this story begins and where it ends. Uh, You're playing with time. Well, here's the thing about The Ferryman. My goal in writing The Ferryman and I always attempt to do something a little different in terms of narrative artistry, because every book I write will come from the same 
basket of my unconscious mind and my various concerns and what's eating at me. And that, that sort of psychological material will never change because it can't. But so every time I write a book, I want to do something different that's kind of structural. For instance, the passage I wanted to write, you know, a huge epic that contained the scenes of vigorous action, something I'd never done. For instance, I've never managed that scope of story, that many characters, that much time and so on. And so part of my ambition there was to see, oh, can I make soup out of everything in the kitchen? That's <laughs> kind of what I was doing. And, you know, give Justin 50 pages just to clear his throat, you know, <laughs> and, which was gas. Like writing the passage was incredible fun because I really just had no limitations at all. And it was really just a joy to do that. What I was intended to do with the ferryman was to write what I call, and I, I don't know if this is a family podcast or not, but I, I wanted to write what I call a holy shit story. And a holy shit story is a, is a story where you get about two thirds, maybe three quarters of the way through the, the book, and something happens that makes you say, holy shit, and throw the thing across the room. In other words, a twist that revises everything that you just read. In a sense, you read the book twice by reading it once because you come to this moment and you sort of turn around and look down the hallway of the novel and you realize you were always headed here. It makes perfect sense. You just never saw it coming. And my model for this, something that went into my brain in the early 1970s when I was a kid, is the last two minutes of Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes was my model for this trick. And there was a time when it was still possible to watch the original Planet of the Apes and not know how it ended. Right? And I did not know. That, that final image, Charlton Heston pounding on the sand, you know, with the Statue of Liberty revealed. So it turns out, yes, he's been on planet Earth the entire time. Right, that image has turned into a thousand memes. Everybody knows it, but in 1972 or 1974 or wh whatever it was, I saw it on my parents' little black and white television with a screen the size of a periscope. That I did, I did not see it early. And it is the perfect turn the camera around, look down the hallway of the novel and all this, or the story in this case, and you realize that is exactly what has been going on the entire time. And I wanted to do that. And it is an enormously hard trick to pull off, I must say. Like this book drove me nuts. This was like every day getting up and trying to split an atom or a diamond or something like that. I mean, it was just like this incredibly precise work where I had to go back and forth inside the book constantly trying to make everything line up in just the way that I needed it to. Justin, it's been great to talk to you and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been talking to Justin Cronin about his latest book, The Ferryman. It's published by Orion, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.